Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. Do you feel stuck in academia? Are you wondering what other careers there are out there for you? Do you have a PhD with a specific background, but you don't know what jobs are aligned with that background or how to find them? If an industry job search seems like a black box to you, go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email, and we will send you our free training materials on how to get into your first or next job in industry. Just go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email address, and start your job search now. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Furthermore, the equation E is equal MC squared. So today's show is about how to avoid being or being seen as an awkward PhD. And this could be to people that you're meeting while you're networking, uh, during your job search, sometimes without realizing it. We can come off as awkward. We can come off as maybe arrogant or maybe insecure, maybe defensive. Uh, this is something that a lot of us struggle with. It's certainly something I struggled with during my job search. And I hope that you will see all of the strategies that we talk about today as being something you can leverage to get along better with others so that you can show them that you're able to work as a team. Very often as PhDs, we don't realize that we haven't had a lot of behavioral practice with things just like conversations. We haven't had a lot of behavioral practice with you know, uh, having a phone conversation for a phone screen, let alone sitting in front of a panel of people on a site visit or giving a presentation to non-academics. This is something that we're going to be covering today. And uh, we'll be talking a lot about strategies. We'll be talking about quantitative data that will show you how you can project yourself, how you can start thinking about things like the pacing of uh, your conversation, the pitch of your conversation. Um, we have a lot, a lot to cover today, and I'm very, very excited to get started. All right, so we're going to go into the show me the data section now. I have on with us Jeanette McConnell. I'm going to make her a co-host here so we can see her and say hi to her first. Hi, Jeanette. How are you? Hello. Hi, good. How are you? Good to see you on. We're going to get through as much of the show me the data section as we can. We do have our special guest, Jordan Harbinger, coming on soon. So once he comes on, we'll jump over to him and talk to him about these, these topics, which he is an expert on. But Jeanette, I love the data here that you collected this week. Um, I'm just going to read off this, the title of this first figure. It's what makes a charismatic speaker, a computer, computer-based acoustic prosodic, am I saying that right? Analysis of Steve Jobs' tone of voice. All right, so this is in Computers and Human Behavior. Uh, it is a peer-reviewed journal article. The link we're showing here is from ResearchGate, um, however. And what we're looking at in figure A, it's a, it's, it's a graph. And on the y-axis, we have pitch level, right? Standard deviation, F0, and it's in hertz. Um, on the x-axis, we have pitch level mean, F0 hertz as well. Bottom left of the chart, we have a bunch of blue bubbles that show our reference sample. 
And then on the other end of the chart, we have these two bubbles titled Steve Jobs with investor versus customer. So can you walk us through what this means, Jeanette, and what we can take away from it? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So this study looked at the difference between sort of how Steve Jobs spoke versus a reference sample of hundreds of other prominent speakers, not just like some dude, but like people who are known for their ability to speak as well, right? Mm. And so they just compared, what does it sound like? What are the, this one is pitch, so what's the frequency like of this speech? Yes. And what, yeah, what they found was that Steve Jobs, you can see that he's, his bubbles are clearly separated from the reference sample. So he had a distinct um, tone of voice, he had a distinct pitch. And the graph is showing that his pitch level was actually higher. So his voice was higher than the majority of these speakers, which I think is kind of counterintuitive, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of times you think I need to like lower my voice to be mm -hmm. like a authority. Yeah. And that, that wasn't the case with him. His, his pitch level was quite high. But the really key bit of this graph is to look at the um, y-axis and the standard deviation and to see that the standard deviation of his pitch level was much higher, meaning his pitch level changed a whole lot. Yeah. So he wasn't speaking in just a high voice, but he would change that um, throughout his speeches. So the standard deviation was high, so he would change his pitch, which is something we talk about quite, we talk about pacing quite a bit, but also pitch. Like if you change your pitch from down here, sometimes when you're going through a concept to up here, when you're talking about something and maybe even uh, intertwine the two, pitch and pace, Super powerful. We've talked about that. But what's amazing is, is the fact that having a higher pitch was helpful in this case. It's kind of amazing. But it's not that amazing. Think of how many singers, right, that you know that have a really unique, very often high-pitched voice that as soon as you hear them, you recognize them. And there's almost like a level of comfort in that. I, I don't know. It just was fascinating to me. Yeah. You know, it, it is. I was, I was kind of surprised at that as well. Um, go back up one more thing I want to mention about that graph yes. real quick is that you can see that there's a, also a clear difference between when he's speaking to investors versus when he's speaking to customers. And so I think as a job seeker, it's important to note that there is a difference in the way you speak depending on who you're speaking with. So yeah. in an interview, you're going to speak differently than when you're at a networking event. And it's important to recognize those distinctions, you know, and, mm. and take advantage of those, those different places and use them differently. Yeah, and what it looks like here is that the standard deviation was the same if he was talking to investors and customers, but he would talk with a higher, even higher pitched voice when talking to customers. And it's, it's amazing because I've read this before that having a higher pitch can make you more approachable, but having a lower pitch makes you seem almost more credible, right? More authoritative, uh, which is what most people focus on. But I think a lot of us forget about the approachability factor. And for PhDs, this is really important. You might think that just slowing yourself down and talking in one of the lower tones that you're, or pitches that you're used to talking to is the way to go? Not necessarily. And, and variability definitely matters. Yeah. But here, it, it looks like the data is saying, you know, if you have a little bit of a higher pitch, it's not a weakness. No. So on this next, next chart here, we're looking at on the y-axis loudness level instead, standard deviation, and this is an intensity. Um, and then on the x-axis mean loudness level intensity uh, in terms of uh, just the level itself. So Steve Jobs is kind of in the center here. What does this mean? Yeah, so this one is interesting too. Again, you can see that Steve Jobs is very separate. And I think this is good to know because we know that he was a charismatic speaker. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so he's clearly separated himself from the field. So it's yeah. important to note that. I think that's number one. Yes. And then also, um, we look at the mean loudness level. You can see that he is not the quietest and he's not the loudest either. So mm -hmm. he's not shouting at you, <laughs> right? That's not pleasant, yes. Yes. but he's also taking up that space with his voice, right? He's in the middle there making his presence known without yelling. I think yes. that's what the loudness is. And then again, the same with the pitch, his standard deviation of change in loudness level is higher than everyone else's. Yeah. So that's, so again, he's, he's ver the variability really matters here. So varying how loud you are when you present um, comes across and there's lots of studies. I mean, they, they've, they have different charisma monitors at MIT and there's been a lot of work on this to try to take, you know, what people have classified in the past as kind of an X factor um, and quantify it saying, no, it's really just being able to, you, you know, your mannerisms, the way you elevate your pitch, the way you change your pacing, the way you change your loudness. These are things that you can work on. I mean, it's, it's right here. It's measurable. You, you can get you, this is in decibels, right? So you can yeah. measure the intensity of your voice as you practice presenting and see, are you about at 50 yeah decibels why is that so crazy I, I don't think it is see where you're at if you're like at 110 like calm down we've all had that person who, we've all had that person who's talked like in a classroom whatever and it's just like just loud and they don't even realize it and it's not their fault it's just some people have a louder voice also some people are very soft you know and they talk like this I always think of Seinfeld's low talker right and they don't realize it but it's something you can measure and clearly it matters yeah and I think the it's being not monotonous, right? That's a good word I think to bring in right here is like this variability is the opposite of being monotonous. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like I always think yeah. of Ferris Bueller, right? Uh, the professor who's like Bueller, <laughs> yeah. Bueller, very monotone. He's made a joke out of that, but it's so funny because it's true. When somebody talks in a monotone voice, you just lose engagement mm -hmm. automatically. Uh, so great, yeah, great stuff. Really, really fun to dig into here. So the next figure, we're looking at CEO charisma compensation and firm performance. This is in the leadership quarterly um, and it's on semanticscholar.org. What we're looking at is a chart here with on the X axis charisma, low and high, right? High perceived market uncertainty, low perceived market uncertainty. Those are the two different lines on the chart, right? So, um, and they're, they're going, up or down across on the y-axis, which is shareholder return. So basically we're looking at how charisma affects shareholder return and really the success of a CEO here, right, Jeanette? Yes, and how charisma affects shareholder return depending on market uncertainty. Yes, Yeah. exactly. So basically, so the, the graph sort of, we'll start with the boring one. It found that um, <laughs> when the market uncertainty is perceived as low, um, there was no difference right. in the shareholder return if the CEO was considered charismatic or not charismatic. It didn't make a clear difference. But when the market was perceived um, as having high uncertainty, yes. um, the charisma of the CEO really increased shareholder return. So that meant that in these times of uncertainty, to me, this is what this means. In times of uncertainty, yes. people are more willing to get behind someone who is charismatic. Right. So, Absolutely. and you're seeing that reflected in the actual monetary shareholder return that they measured for these companies. Yeah. Now, when you dig it, if you do dig into this paper, they found that this return, the graph clearly has no, there's no numbers on this graph, which is irritating to me, but 
there's <laughs> they tell you about it in, <laughs> they tell you about it in the paper and it was a small increase actually it was different but it was small yeah. but if you scroll down on the screen just a tiny little bit um they found that the even though it was a small effect it accounted for approximately 130 million dollars worth of wealth creation in one year wow right and it was this just by being more charismatic and also that that is reflected in the ceo salary so when a company does better right as a ceo you get yes. money back exactly. <laughs> right? you make money so, off that and this is the perfect topic for uh jordan who we're going to bring on now and uh first of all thank you Jeanette, very much do you feel stuck in academia? Are you wondering what other careers there are out there for you? Do you have a PhD with a specific background, but you don't know what jobs are aligned with that background or how to find them? If an industry job search seems like a black box to you, go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email, and we will send you our free training materials on how to get into your first or next job in industry. Just go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email address, and start your job search now. How you come off to other people matters, and that is the specialty of our next guest, who I'm going to introduce here in a quick, quick bio, and who's on with us live. So Jordan Harbinger, offered, often referred to as the Larry King of podcasting, is a Wall Street lawyer turned interview talk show host and communications and social dynamics expert. Jordan has hosted a top 50 iTunes podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, um, for over a decade, which receives over 4 million downloads a month. That is crazy. Like we got a couple, you know, a few thousand and we're like, oh, we're doing great. 4 million downloads a month, making the show one of the most popular podcasts in the world. On The Jordan Harbinger Show, Jordan deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth and shares his strategies, perspectives, and practical insights with the rest of us. His business sense, extensive knowledge of the industry and contemporary approach to teaching, make him the most sought after coaches in the world. This is his website. Definitely go to jordanharbinger.com. We're going to put this in the chat box for all of you members here, as well as uh, all of the, the comment boxes where we're streaming online. Uh, I've met Jordan a few times. He is an incredible guy, very, uh, very charismatic in a good way. He is very knowledgeable in terms of helping people come off better to others in networking, really taking those qualities that are in you and just expressing them in the right way. He's worked with a lot of PhDs. I know he's run these camps out in California where he's worked with PhDs, he's worked with technical professionals, people who just are maybe more introverted, aren't comfortable in networking situations or, or job searches, and he's just completely transformed them. So Jordan, great to have you on. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. I actually just woke up to the news this morning that the Jordan Harbinger show was selected the one of the best of Apple's 2018. So that just came out yesterday. Wow. That was, that was some pretty good news. I've been doing the show for 12 years and that never happened. So I'll take it finally. Right. I'll tell yeah, I've been loving it. I, I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, the rapport you're able to build so quickly with others is, is, uh, is something to watch. So if you haven't seen one of Jordan's podcasts yet, subscribe to it today. Uh, you won't regret it. Um, he has a great way again of, uh, it doesn't come off as, and I know I'm talking to PhDs here, it doesn't come off as hokey or fake at all. It's just who he is. And he's really good at helping you kind of identify those authentic ways to communicate um, so that it's not fake. So it feels good to you. And it also feels good to the other person. And it increases performance and gets results. 
um, which is impressive. Uh, so you've worked with a lot of PhD types, Jordan. You've worked with people who are probably the most awkward people in the world, even beyond what we might think of as a, you know, a, a, where I was when I was in, in graduate school. What are some of the, the, the biggest issues that you see that right away you're like, oh, they're just not doing this right. They're making this mistake. Um, that's, ha that's having them come off as awkward. Sure. So it's not just awkward. It's really primarily that a lot of people, especially high performers, such as PhDs, tend to think, okay, I'll network later. Right now I've got a dissertation to do or a class to teach or some 8 billion projects to do while raising kids and having a family, half of you, right? Yes. So what we have is a bunch of people that have a million things to do <clears throat> that know how to do most of them. And then there's this whole, oh, by the way, you all have to network too. And so it gets pushed downwards towards the bottom of the priority list and then never happens. Mm. And then the problem that we run into is once people need those relationships that they did not build over the last 10, 20 years, that you publish a book or you go looking for a teaching position or some other type of project and you go, oh, shoot, I've been in the PhD bubble for... 18 years or whatever it takes, you know, whatever yes. field you're in, or I, or I know everyone in my department in my university and a couple of random people that I've met at a conference once five years ago and never kept in touch with. So we have the, we have to dig the well before we're thirsty. And what that means is just what it sounds like. The, the best time to put a spare tire in the trunk of your car is before you get a flat. Uh, I think the Chinese proverb is the best time to plant a tree was a hundred years ago. And the second best time is right now. You know, there's a lot of different ways to say the same thing. And mm. what that all comes down to is we love to procrastinate and we ha we're really good at rationalizing it, right? Mm. We're really good at going, hey, I know you say networking is important, but I don't see immediate ROI to it. Where I do see immediate ROI is making sure I've got my citations correct or making sure that I'm attending all these meetings with my advisory board or whatever. That stuff tends to pop up first. And so that becomes a problem that compounds over time because like we said before, you wake up one day, realize you're in the bubble and then go, oh no, I don't have relationships and it's time to leverage them. So one exercise I would say <clears throat> would befit everyone listening right now is, and what you can do after this is create a list of 10 to 15 people that you would call today if you got laid off or fired or your business melted down or you got uh, you, everything around you evaporated and you needed to find maybe mm. like a day job, so to speak, or you wanted to switch career fields, make that list now. I call this layoff lifelines because essentially we're imagining that we got laid off, whatever that means yeah. in your field. And we make that list of 10 to 12 to 15 people and then reach out now while you don't have an agenda other than keeping in touch. And you can literally write to them or call them and say, hey, this is Jordan and uh, I've just done a terrible job of keeping in touch with people over the last 10 to 15 years and I'm trying to remedy that. And you'll see some people react a little bit initially with suspicion because they'll go, uh oh, I haven't heard from Isaiah in like five years. Is he gonna try to sell me Herbalife or is he trying to convert me to Scientology? <laughs> What's going on here? And so when we, I hit too close to home there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I got it right over here. <laughs> like, yeah, um, but like what what we have <laughs> is once you get through that initial suspicion, you start to realize, oh, reaching out to people and, and quote unquote networking is actually not that hard at all. And it's really not that hard when 
you don't have an agenda because people go, oh, but it's so awkward to reach out to somebody. It's awkward when you know you done messed up and you're like, oh, shoot, I haven't talked to Isaiah for five years. Hey, I've got this book on dog grooming. Can you sell it to all your friends? And you're like, oh, man. So then I feel awkward because I know that I dropped the ball Mm -hmm. and now I need something. And Mm -hmm. I go, oh, shoot, this is so awkward. It's not awkward to reach out to your friends. You know, it's not awkward to reach out and say, hey, Jordan, I've got a new book. Can I come on your show and, and discuss the content? That's it's not weird. Something, Right. Yeah. So it's not weird at all. It's only weird if I know that I'm only reaching out because I need something. And I know that you know that. So then I know that I should be ashamed of myself. So then I feel that shame. That's why people think networking is awkward in many cases not because it actually is, but because we've set ourselves up essentially to fail or to make it as awkward as possible by not digging the well before we're thirsty. Does that make mm. sense? It does. Now let's talk more about Scientology and how it's the way. No, I'm just kidding. Great. So, Good idea. <laughs> so you mentioned the, having an agenda. Now, most of the people that are watching here, they're in that place where they realized I didn't plant this tree, you know, 10 years ago, hundred years ago. I'm in desperation mode now. Like everybody just got laid off. Grants are not being funded. I need a job yesterday. So if you find yourself in desperation mode, what are some things that you can do behaviorally to take a step back to not have yourself come off as, you know, with every interaction as having an agenda? Because people can, I think, see it a lot more than we realize. Like they're just very in tune to if you're going to ask for something right away. So what's the best way to start now if you're already behind? You don't have time to do all this. I think that's a great exercise, but what if, you know, you need a job yesterday. What are just some quick things that you might suggest to do if you're desperate? Sure. So the way to start this is one layoff lifelines is a great exercise to do this, but that, that's not a daily practice. That's something that you'll use to re-engage some relationships that you've let fall by the wayside and kick off the rust, but it's about consistency and daily practice. So one thing, <clears throat> pardon me, I've got a little frog in my throat today. Hopefully it's not super loud when you, when I clear my throat. No, no. Um, one of the daily practices that I do every day is, 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 I don't have a fancy name for it. It's called text re-engage. I'm open to ideas on what we need, what we call this, <laughs> but uh, I like it, essentially what we do is whenever I'm in line for coffee or I'm waiting for a, a bus or something like that, or an airline lounge or a gate, instead of scrolling through Instagram mindlessly, what I'll do is I'll go open up my phone. I'll scroll into my text message app. And you know, you've got those, those messages all the way at the bottom where it's like, oh yeah, I had lunch with them at a financial conference in San Diego three years ago and then hmm. never kept in touch. What I'll do is I'll find the people at the bottom of that text message list because those are the sort of weaker and dormant ties. And I will reach out to those people. And it's, a, it's sort of a script, but it's, it's more of a structure. And the structure is important. Essentially, this will re-engage people and you'll start conversations, but you have to do it in the right way. First of all, you say hello and you use their name. That way they know it's not some sort of mass text that you're sending to 85 different people or it's it's not some software that you've got. And then you say it's been a couple of years or several months or whatever since we met at, and ideally, if you remember where you met them, you put that in there. If you don't, don't worry about it. And you can say it's been a while since we've talked if you don't know where you met. And then you can say... I'd love to hear the latest, what's going on with you. For me, I'm, and then just put like one line. For me, I'm doing my PhD. I'm still hanging out, studying in Germany. just got married, whatever it is. 
you throw that in there and you say, I'd love to hear the latest from you. I've been bad at keeping in touch and I'm going to remedy that. And then you say no rush on the reply. Mm. Ho- hope to hear from you soon. And then you sign your name. You got to sign your name. Otherwise it's like new phone, who dis, or like th- worse, they're embarrassed that they don't <laughs> remember you or that they, cause it's, if I don't have your number saved, I can either say, oh my gosh, this is awkward. Who is this? Or I can just ignore it and you'll never know that I didn't get the text, right? right. So we want to sign our name. That way I'm not putting them in the position to ignore it if they mm. don't have my number in there. And so that gets us out of the hole. The, the other reason that we say no rush on the reply is because going back to herbal life and Scientology, when we hear from people from a long time ago, often we're suspicious of their motives. And when people are trying to sell you something, usually they build urgency. So they say something like, I've got a great opportunity. Hit me back whenever you get a chance. And you're like, whatever. But if you just like, hey, look, I realize everyone's busy. Don't don't worry about it if you can't get back to me. Then people go, well, actually, I am going to reply because you're probably not trying to sell anything. And this is a subconscious process. And it's worked really well. When I tested this. I was getting about 40% response rate. And then when I added, don't worry if you can't reply right away, it went up to like 60, 70%. And I realized that my theory is that people, once they know I'm not trying to sell them stuff, they're just much more likely to reply. And I do that. I re-engage maybe four or five people per day, Mm. uh, depending on the day. I take the weekends off. you only do this Monday through Friday and you only do this with, let's say five people, which is four minutes of texting. If that, yeah, you're going to get 70% response rate. <clears throat> that ends up being somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 responses. Well, out of those 15 people, most people are going to have, eh, I had a baby. Cool. Good to hear from you. Talk to you again in three years, whatever. But usually just by playing the numbers game, I personally end up, I, per- I personally end up with somebody saying something along the lines of, oh, hey, uh, I just, I'm trying to think of a real example here. I just stepped out of a meeting or I'm about to step into a meeting where we're picking our annual sales keynote, whatever. Do you still do speaking? That's one that I got a while back. Another one was, oh, hey, I'm actually planning a conference in Fiji. Would you want to come speak at that? So you just get these weird one-off opportunities or, oh, good, you're top of mind. So it, won't, it might not be that they're about to step into a meeting, but they might text you the next week and go, so funny you texted me last week. I was just thinking, I'm writing a story for Forbes about this and this and this. You want to drop in a quote. You just stay top of mind with 25 people every single week who were probably never going to think about you ever again in their entire life, right? <laughs> so, so you get these people going back in and you kind of stay top of mind and it really just is instagram time it's water cooler time it's you know waiting in line for the bathroom kind of you know time killer yeah. waiting for, to get onto an airplane like you're not using any you're not using any time that you would normally be doing anything useful basically mm. you're turning this sort of downtime into something useful and so i found that to be extremely potent you don't have to go crazy with it i know some people are like i did 40 re-engages today and it's like okay don't want to do that because you don't want it to turn it into a task that you dread that takes yes. up a lot of time. Yes. The other thing that people worry about, and I'll just squash this one right now. Yeah. Go, I don't have time to text at work all day. Don't worry. Calm down. You're probably going to text five people. Three are going to respond and they're going to, it's going to go like you, them, you, them. And they're going to go, well, I got to go to work and that's it. And it's not awkward and it's totally fine. 
And that's our goal. We're just re-engaging weaker and dormant ties. We're not trying to be best friends with them. We're not trying to set up a lunch. You know, it's just staying top of mind. And if they need something, if you find out if someone's like, yeah, I'm writing a book and I'm looking for an editor, know anyone, then you take that opportunity to connect people inside your network. But otherwise, it's really, really low slash zero obligation for both parties, including you. I love it. It's almost like he's a PhD, right? Uh, I think he understands the mindset very well. And what I want to remind you is we looked at that data a couple of weeks ago showing that weaker ties are very powerful for opportunities, often more powerful than your stronger ties. So don't think that following up with a dormant contact, turning into a weak tie is going to lead, won't lead to something. It, it often does. In fact, it's the most likely. Exactly. Um, I do have a question on the mindset. You touched on this a bit. So what about your own personal mindset as you're doing this? Because there's got to, let's be honest, there's got to be a part of you that's like, I really want this result. How do you step into the state of being more present so it's an authentic interaction and you're actually focused on building the relationship versus just getting what you want? How do you do that personally? So how to, to clarify, you're asking how to foster a relationship versus just getting what you want? In your like in your mindset, right? So you're reaching out. There is a purpose here to build your network because opportunities come from it. And I think a lot of us really shift into that gear of wanting to drive a result how do you stay out of that mindset so you can come across as uh, authentically wanting to build a relationship? Right. So that, that is a problem that people have is, is sometimes I'll get pushback on this. It's rare, but somebody will go, well, you know, isn't this disingenuous because in the end we always want something from these people. And the right. answer is actually we don't. Um, what we're normally trying to do is we call this, well, have you ever seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross with the like ABC always be closing and it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, get a, get the money. <clears throat> That's a popular sales maxim is ABC always be closing. Well, I'm, I prefer ABG, which is always be generous or always be giving. And what this means is that we want to help other people without the attachment of getting anything in return. Mm -hmm. And so if I connect with, so if I'm doing the text re-engage and one week, somebody comes back to me and says, yeah, I've got a book coming out, but I need an editor because my other editor quit. And then I meet somebody else and they're editing. I go, oh, okay. I'm just going to connect these two people in my network. I'm not connecting them because one day I need free editing and one day I need free book writing. It's I'm not thinking about what's in it for me at all. Mm. All I'm trying to do is connect other people in my network to each other. So another and that is my value add because a lot of people go i can't just if, if i'm a graphic designer i can't just give free graphics to everyone you're not you're not doing the the legwork there what you're doing is using your existing network nodes and tying them together which makes this process really scalable hmm. you know this isn't five hours of free work that you're going to do for everyone every day this is you could make a hundred introductions a week and it probably wouldn't even dent your productivity time because yeah. it's just an email <clears throat> that goes to each party and then connects to each person. And some people go, well, I want to make a lot of introductions. By the time you're making dozens and dozens of introductions, you should just hire an assistant that can do this for you because your network is so expansive that you're probably seeing a lot of ROI from it. But mm. with ABG or AB, always be giving instead yeah. of always be closing. This is something that is a little bit hard to explain because a lot of people are like, but, but then you secretly do want something. The answer to that is more or less yes, but it's not something specific and it doesn't have to come from those people. Mm. So if I make a hundred networking connections and I'm just giving value first, I'm not keeping score and thinking like, oh, I'm going to get something from them. I can help a hundred people. 
if 99 of them never helped me back with anything, who cares? I banked a bunch of goodwill. I helped out a bunch of good people. They've got a bunch of stuff done. And then when, when you need something, you can sort of float that out to your network and you'll have people clamoring and climbing over each other to help you because they owe you one. And occasionally you'll find one person who goes, Hey, you know, that introduction you made three years ago resulted in a business. Hmm. We would love to sponsor your show or have you fly out and speak or, you know, we owe you big time. You find people where you introduce them to their new career, their what, their significant other, their wife, whatever, husband. That's kind of a big deal. Hmm. It's a position of honor. And so when I actually had to restart my business from scratch earlier in 2018, I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to rebuild the Jordan Harbinger show quickly. It took me 11 years to build up my initial show. I built the Jordan Harbinger show bigger than the old show in 10 months because I reached out to all these people that I had been helping or that I'd known over the last 11 years. And I said, Hey guys, I'm in trouble. What can you do? And it was just like a deluge of I'm mailing this out to my list. I'm putting this on social. I'm connecting you with guests. I'm going to you know, make sure that you show up in search results. I have people work on my website for free. I had people doing SEO for free because I didn't know what to do and I had no funding. I just couldn't have purchased that amount of goodwill if I had $10 million. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to do it because I had to build it slowly. And that's why digging the well is so important. You don't ever think you're going to be thirsty. You always think, well, I'll be fine because you always sort of have been. Mm. But having a great network and relationship set is the best insurance that you can't ever purchase. It's not for sale. You have to. Fantastic. How, How are you on time, Jordan? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I was wondering how my connection is because I am in a hotel, which is why there's this bright light behind me. But no, you're good. It 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 paused like once or twice, but we're great here. This is fantastic. Everybody's uh, everybody's doing great. So, um, do we have time for a Vino to come on the show and ask Jordan a question? She's a big fan. Yeah, let's bring her cool. on. Mary, you want to pop her on here? And then Jordan, while we bring her on, if you can be thinking about think about your like most lost cause case that you've worked with in person. Somebody doesn't even know how to handshake. I'm just curious, like if we're, especially in person, if we're taking somebody from ground zero, what are some things that you you can do to A, help them identify where they're actually at in terms of social awareness and rapport, and then how to improve that? Because that's something we face, we face quite a bit here. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, do you want me to answer that now or do you want me to wait? We'll come come back to that. Let me see, Mary, are we able to bring Vino on? Yeah, she's on. Oh. She is on. Oh, she's over here. Sorry. Uh, let me cool unmute. Name, Vino. <laughs> uh, let's Hi, guys. See. Oh, there we Hello. go. Hi, Isaiah, Mary, and everyone. Hi, Vino. Thanks for coming on live. How are you? So you've, you've seen Jordan's show. I have, yes. I'm a massive fan. That's great. <laughs> I'm staying up. It's like way past midnight just so that I can catch you, Jordan. Oh, I appreciate <laughs> that. I'm glad I was able to come on. I didn't originally... Uh, know where I was going to be. So I'm really glad we were able to make this happen. Yeah. Thank you. Vino. Sure, so we're, we're ready for you. What's your question? Yeah, sure. Jordan. So my question is, you know, like I, I do practice meditation and, mm-hmm. you know, I try and be mindful as much as possible, but you know, sometimes when you are in a situation where it is high pressure, you know, you're meeting maybe someone who you truly respect, for example, and you just, you get flustered, <laughs> you get intimidated. How, you know, for me, like I, 
I just I just do something silly and you know and I just, and I start giggling a lot which I think I'm I'm kind of doing it right now. <laughs> no, it's okay. So how do you sort of you know maintain that that professionalism and you know try and get your point across without looking like a complete doofus? <laughs> so I think that's a great question. You know I think the reason that people feel self-conscious when they start to get the giggles or feel a little bit of anxiety or, or um, what do we call it? Is is it starstruck the term? But it seems a little grandiose when you're talking about certain. Yeah, like a girl. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think ev everyone is flattered by this, and I, it, to put your worries at ease, it still happens to me sometimes. I don't get the giggles, but I start mm -hmm. to stumble over words, or I, I start to do different distraction sort of habits. My wife catches me all the time and is like, "What are you doing?" Um, <laughs> and so I, I tend to just call it out. And instead of making a big deal about it, I might say something like, wow, it's so funny. I feel a little bit nervous. I didn't think that would happen, but I guess it still can. I'm a huge fan of your work. And, and even if you're telling that to a professor or some kind of science researcher. Like or something, yeah. Yeah, I think that those people get it so, so rarely that it is more flattering. Like if, if you tell some NBA player that you're nervous because you're a huge fan, they probably just go, all right, whatever. I've heard that every day of my life. But if you tell that to a professor of biology at a well-known university, they're probably going to be like, wow, I have fans. This is awesome. This is the coolest <laughs> thing ever. And I don't think they're going to look at that person and go, wow, they like my work. What a weirdo. You know, they're not going to think like this. <laughs> This loser came to my talk to listen to me because she loves what I'm doing. What a dork. Like, I don't think that's very likely. I think they're going to be excited about that. And so if you do get the giggles, you can say, wow, look at me. I'm giggling. I'm a, I'm a little nervous because I really like what you're doing. And then it sort of takes all of the air out. You know, when you're in school and you're a kid and something's funny and you start laughing and since you're not supposed to be laughing, you go nuts and you're just dying. And your face is red. And you're like tearing up. Well, if you're allowed to laugh, you can just kind of get it out of your system and it's over. This is the same thing that we're having with our sort of starstruck reaction is we're going, uh oh, I'm supposed to be cool. And then since we know yeah, not, yeah. it's not working, we start to giggle and we start to look around and we start to look at our feet because we know if we look at them, we're yeah. going to start giggling again. And then we get self-conscious because we're looking at our shoes and we know we look weird. It's so it's better crazy. to just kind of like yeah. let it wash over you, call it out. And then people can go, oh, she's a nervous laugher. That's fine. We're, and then we're probably both laughing at that point. And then all the tension melts away because that laughter is there right. to process that tension. That's why when you mm -hmm. laugh with friends and you laugh on dates, it's generally a good sign, right? And, and so that same thing can be in any social interaction. So I think calling it out, uh, telling them what's going on is totally fine. And if you've really got the giggles, then just let it wash over you, get it out of your system and <laughs> let it turn into a smile. They would probably think I am a weirdo. <laughs> but everybody loves, everybody loves fun, positive personalities. And right. so instead of thinking, wow, what a weirdo, she's laughing for no reason. They're just going to think, wow, she's such a smiley, positive person. That's a good reputation to have. And so I wouldn't worry about it and I wouldn't feel that self-conscious, but I totally get why you do because I'm the same way. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I'm I'm just I feel real lucky sometimes because you know I've got a tan skin, so I I can't I can't blush. <laughs> yeah, that is fortunate. I so that's just one thing. <laughs> that's for me. 
But thank you guys. Thank you so much for taking my question. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you're you, welcome. Vino. Great to see you on. Thanks, Vino, for coming on live. That, that was great. <laughs> I think we've all had that experience. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So the, the, the last question here, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, you know, taking somebody from baseline, just because I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, I'm a special case. And you've probably dealt with this before. I had this unique situation. It's different, right? We justified the reason why we shouldn't try to network or shouldn't try to improve uh, our uh, approachability or shouldn't try to improve in general. So what, how do you help someone, A, gain self-awareness over how they're coming across, and then B, once they are aware that they're maybe a bit deficient in that area, how do you try to get them to increase their, uh, their performance, especially in terms of in-person interactions? Sure. So there's a couple things we can do to target specific <clears throat> to specific weak points. One, I always uh, I always try to break things down to nonverbal communication. It doesn't always come down to that. It often does. So when we find people that are, and this is just one specific instance because it's impossible to cover every single uh, outcome or iteration of this, but sure. when we see people that are hunched over computers all day, studying, reading, um, grading papers, typing, writing, whatever it is, <clears throat> we often find that there's a closed and unfriendly looking posture, even if that person is friendly enough. And so something that I like to do is open people up and we use the doorway drill. And what this is essentially is every time you walk through a doorway, just you would straighten up your posture, chest out a little bit, shoulders back. You don't have to exaggerate it. You'll look kind of silly, but just shoulders back, chin up, chest up, smile on your face, open, positive, confident body language. And the, the idea is we're walking through doorways so many times during the day that we reset ourselves a lot. And mm. I know what's going to happen is as soon as people hear this, they're going to go through one door and do it and go, that's cool. And then they're going to walk through 500 more doors in the next week and not do it one single time. So what I recommend people do is grab those little post-it notes that usually aren't worth the paper they're used for because they're too tiny, the bright yellow or pink or green ones, stick them up on the door frame at eye level. And what that'll do is that'll interrupt your autopilot response. So when you're walking through your office door, your bathroom door, your bedroom door, your front door, whatever it is in, in your house or office, you go, what's that post-it note? Oh, right, I'm supposed to straighten up and reset my posture. You don't have to write anything on it. You know, people don't have to go, what's that post-it note for? It's just a post-it note. doesn't matter. And you can re you'll reset your body language and you'll start to develop that as a habit. Eventually, you won't need the post-it notes. And what that does is it creates a default open, positive and upright posture. And what that does is when people, when we become a blip on other people's radar, we treat them as the first impression dictates. So if someone walks in and they're hunched over and they're looking at their phone we think this person's busy, they're closed off, maybe they're cranky, we don't know. But if someone walks in and they're upright and they're positive and they're smiling, we think, oh, this is a friendly, outgoing person. And we start to treat people as such. Mm -hmm. And when people start to treat us a certain way, that actually trains the way that we see ourselves and the way that we behave because we're really just reacting to the environment around us. So <clears throat> once people start to talk to us and chat us up and treat us like we're charismatic, outgoing and friendly, we start to behave as such. So really these post-it notes create this virtuous cycle where you've got great body language and nonverbal communication. People start treating you like somebody who behaves that way. And then we're training other people how to treat us. And by doing so, we start to live into that particular reputation. So we can find 
that somebody who's normally a little distracted, a little introverted, and maybe a little bit of a bookish uh, geek like myself, and probably a lot of other people on this on this in the show right now. What? Uh, just, yeah, being just professionals and PhDs, we tend to be absorbed in our work. We tend to be absorbed in our heads. We tend to be cerebral. So if we can break out of that just for a few seconds every time we walk through the door, we're going to get treated differently, and then it's going to cement better behaviors mm. in us. So rather than being like, oh, I got to remember to have a firm handshake and look people in the eye. It's like, okay, we can try to manually put everything into place, but it's going to be pretty precarious and require a lot of processing power to remember each little thing. What we want is to create nonverbal communication patterns, such as the doorway drill and our posture, such that we don't have to think about this stuff anymore. It just starts to happen. Every person knows how to be outgoing friendly or at least look it. We just spend our lifetimes not doing it. So yep. if, if we can create that nonverbal communication that says, that gives people the impression we want, we're not going to have to remember good eye contact. We're not going to have to remember firm handshakes. And there are little tricks that we can do to also trick that process along. So for example, if you find yourself looking at the floor instead of making eye contact, and then you're like, well, when I work on eye contact, I look like a serial killer because now I'm only <laughs> looking at people in the eyes. We can find that balance by noticing people's eye color and that's just long enough and then we can look away and do whatever we want so if i just look at your and i'm like oh isaiah's got blue eyes the cashier has green eyes that woman has brown eyes i'm now making enough eye contact where i'm not avoiding them but i'm not making so much eye contact that they're like wow this person i don't <laughs> want to see this person in a parking structure right so like we we can just sort of use little tricks like that to make enough of a great solid impression that people treat us in the way that they would treat somebody who's social and outgoing and then the rest tends to fall into place fantastic i mean that, that, those are some of the best uh, behavioral advice uh, advice tips that i've received and i think you know we've had body language people on we haven't talked to probably as many body language experts as you have but one thing that has been lacking i think is okay what do i do to turn it into a habit not like, yeah, focus on a handshake, focus on this. But those are, those are great tips. And I think it's something all of you can, I mean, think about how many times you walk through the door to your lab, right? You, or, or, you know, you walk through the, the door to the computer room or the classroom. Great tips. Uh, please do me a favor and thank Jordan uh, profusely in the chat box here and as well as uh, on every comment box, uh, wherever you're seeing us stream live to. This was a, a fantastic, fantastic interview. And I really appreciate you making time, Jordan. Thank you. I want to make sure that we can, get people to where you want them most. Was it your website sure. or iTunes or what do you think? Sure. So if people listen to podcasts, I have the Jordan Harbinger show and I'd love to have some other fans of that as well. I also did make a free little mini course about things like the doorway drill, the eye color drill, the text re-engage and a dozen other exercises. Yes. And I'll put the link in the chat. It's actually jordanharbinger.com slash level one. Jordan Harbinger. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't think there's a hyphen, but I should, I should make that redirect. Yeah. You can just type level one and it should redirect to this sort of free class nice. that we've got here. Oh, this is great. This has videos of how you do the doorway drill and videos of how you do the text re-engage and little, the, the script in case people were like, wait, what did he say on that thing? It's all in level one. This is great. And you know what I, I always like to do? I'm going to give you the link to the actual 
checkout page too. It's free. I highly recommend this. I didn't know Jordan did these classes until, man, it was like last January. I thought it was fantastic. It's something we've always thought about doing, but it's just not in our wheelhouse. And uh, Jordan's been doing it for years with PhDs, academics, people who have the same problems that, that we talk about frequently and who want to get the same kind of results, like a job, right? Or build up their industry network because like Jordan said, oh, I know the people in my lab. That's it. Uh, highly recommend this and make sure, you know, even right now, go just on your phone, go to your podcast app, look up the Jordan Harbinger show and just subscribe. His guests are fantastic. And like he said, top, top Apple podcast at this point, 4 million downloads. Don't, don't miss out there. Thank you, Jordan, for your time. Great to see you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Bye everyone and be well. Take care. Are you trying to get your first or next industry job? Have you heard that networking is important, but you don't know how to do it or you do not enjoy it? Maybe you're introverted like me and networking drains your energy. And just the thought of going to a networking event or hanging out with colleagues or reaching out to somebody on LinkedIn drains your energy. Good news. We have a new ebook called 40 Networking Scripts for PhDs. These are the networking scripts that you can use for every type of situation. A live networking event, reaching out to someone you've never met before on LinkedIn or by email, or reconnecting with someone you've met in the past. The scripts that will help you get connected and start getting informational interviews and job referrals are in this new ebook. It's 40 networking scripts for PhDs. Just go to 40phdscripts.com. Again, that's 40phdscripts.com. 40phdscripts.com. And you'll get this free ebook that has our most proven networking scripts for every type of networking situation. So you don't have to do anything. You can copy and paste these scripts, change the names, send them off, get job referrals, get hired, get promoted. Marriott, where are we going to next? I think we're going to bring on our second guest. Yes, Scott is there. All right, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to introduce you, Scott, very, very quickly here, and then we're going to bring you on. So Scott, if you can see my screen, completed his PhD at the University of Melbourne. He then relocated to the USA and continued to make contributions to many aspects of cardiovascular research. He recently joined Eli Lilly as a principal research scientist with the Diabetes and Cardiovascular Complications Group, where he is enjoying being more closely connected to interventions that will directly benefit um, heart failure patients. In his spare time, he is a musician and a photographer. I didn't know this, Scott. Scott, what, what instrument do you play? Oh, you're on mute. Hold on. Let me get you off mute. There we go. Go ahead. Okay, that, that probably helps. Uh, I've been playing the piano since I was five years old. And, um, wow. you know, it's, it's, it's funny that, that Mary wrote, you know, in his spare time, Scott does this because I don't know where my spare time is these days with a, with a, a family and a new job and a move. But, um, yeah, p- piano is an important part of my life. Certainly music, music is. That's great. I think it was just the last show we were talking about how important having like some sort of creative expression in terms of a hobby, especially with playing an instrument is, is really important and can make you more successful in a variety of ways. And clearly it's worked for you. Oh, well, here's, here's part of it as, as well as letting the creative side of your brain um, have a bit of free play. The other thing about, about music and a lot of other hobbies is that you have to do a small amount every day or, or on a, on a regular interval. 
in order to get some benefit. You can't cram, you, and you, know, you, you can't suddenly develop all of the skills you need one day before you need to present them at a concert yeah. or a collaboration. It's that, it's that discipline of doing something toward a future goal every day. That, and I mean, I think that made a fundamental difference uh, to me growing up and on my entire life, and I think it mm. continues to. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, okay, with this great creative background and all the things that you could be successful at, why did you choose to go into R&D and industry? Uh, it's very much a continuation of what I think have been life aims of sorts for the, for the last 20 years. I only started a PhD because I had I, perhaps not a particularly focused goal in mind of what kind of disease research I wanted to do, but I wanted to work in a way that would ultimately make an impact on the health of people suffering diseases. A lot of friends have asked me, well, why didn't you become a physician or uh, you know, go into something like that? And I suppose I could have, but at the time of my life where I had to make decisions like that, I was your archetypal shy nerd, didn't really want to engage with a, with a whole lot of people. Um, that is still a fundamental part of my personality, but I think some of the shell has, has disappeared over, over the last several years. Uh, so I always wanted to make an impact in human health because I really didn't know um, much different than, than following the traditional academic path. And you must remember, uh, growing up and going to school in Australia, that essentially, I mean, there is not a, an R&D industry of sorts there. It's too small a country and too small an environment to support most of that. So I went along a traditional academic path. I was encouraged to postdoc in the US, which I did in order to take advantage of the greater infrastructure here and the greater number of opportunities. Um, it took a while going down that path before I realized that I wasn't really having the kind of impact on, on, on health research that I might have wanted to. And I certainly began to realize that within the academic system, unless you're quite far up the pyramid, it can be very difficult to be to be terribly influential, and and it's not that I I had a I had a personality need that I that I had to run the whole show or figure everything out, but I did want to be doing something that I felt was impactful. Even though I eventually acquired a junior faculty position and had the opportunity to run my own lab for a while, that grind of convincing a relatively small group of your peers at the NIH that what you are doing is important um, really got to me. And I think the other thing that got to me was a lot of very well-meaning advice from people who had been successful in the system saying, you know, you're just going to have to focus on something very small at the start. You're going to have to play by everybody's rules. You're going to have to do what you have to do in order to get your grants funded. And then once you've achieved some sort of level of seniority, then you can go off and do what you wanted. And I think as soon as that advice started percolating through, I thought, I've got to get the hell out of here. Uh, this, this, this is not compatible um, with my aims. So I've now been with Lily for three and a little bit months, uh, a reasonably short amount of time. And yet I can tell you that every day I am, I am sitting in rooms of really smart, really hardworking, dedicated people who are all trying to get to that same goal of improving human health without yes. having to fuss about will the study section like my grant proposal? Or did I use this word or that word or this phrase um, in my discussion that's going to captivate their attention? I mean, all, all of that sort of nonsense has been blown away. And I, I, feel, I feel like I'm getting on with the job um, in a way that I simply haven't for most of my professional life. That's fantastic. And very, very inspiring. Um, very inspiring. I think for a lot of you who are thinking, you know, sometimes you get to a dark place in your job search 
and you have to go back to why you are doing this, this is why. So you can, in a sense, reach your full potential, be unleashed, I think, be around people who will work with you to make a difference, right? In, in, in academia, sometimes we, we get pushed down so far that we start focusing on really small things because we're not able to make the big difference that we want. And because of the way things are with grants, et cetera. And yes, of course, a lot of people are well-meaning, but you know, they can only add to it by saying, well, you just need to kind of tone yourself down in this way or play small or focus even smaller. And we're like, is it even possible to focus smaller than I'm focusing right now? Is it, is it possible to be okay with even less than, than, what I've, I've accepted for myself already. Well, I certainly wasn't happy with it. And I, and I would encourage anybody watching and listening that if, that if, um, if, if there's, if there's, if there's a shred of a spark left in you to, to get out there and, and, and make a bigger difference, um, then I think you've absolutely got to grab it and, and fan it back into action. There are so many useful techniques and tips and tricks you can pick up from folks like Jordan and from all of the material that cheeky scientists have to offer. But I think that that whole focus on, on mindset today that Jordan has, I, I really think that's the thing. Mm. I think after after being involved in academic based research for 17 or, or 18 years um, and and really coming to the realization that I wasn't getting done the kinds of things that I wanted to get done. That was such that was such a catalytic trigger to my mindset that I went off from that point saying, well, I'm not going to be satisfied anymore with mm. what this has to offer me. I'm going to have to go and find out. Um, I'm going to have to work at something that's really going to satisfy those goals. Once you've got a driving ambition like that and a driving mindset, um, while all of the techniques of opening yourself up and being you know, presentable and relatively charming and so forth are, are important, I think once you've got the mindset, the rest is going to follow naturally. If you're going out there just trying to execute a series of uh, performance tricks in order to try to make people engage with you or like you or seem like you know what you're doing in an industry environment, it's, it's, not, it's not going to be genuine and people are going to realize that no matter how convincing you think you are. So I think you, you've got to get the mindset right. You've got to get your ambition right. And once you've figured that out, I, mm. I think you can relax. The, the rest is going to follow, right? Yeah. And it's, it's hard for us as PhDs to realize that. Um, I, I heard it put recently that it's really 20% strategy and 80% psychology. And that's hard for us to wrap our heads around because we're like, well, I don't need to change my mindset. You know, everything is fine. Like I want this result, but you do. And actually changing your mindset will help you execute the strategies better. And so we've talked a lot about mindset. I've seen how your mindset has shifted and I really appreciate you giving back and, and just you've inspired a lot of us here already. I want to zoom into the technical now and talk a little bit about how your transition actually occurred. So what were some of the key points that you can remember, whether it was a specific contact uh, that you made, a, spe you know, a specific job referral, uh, referral interview question, something that stood out to you as a defining moment during your transition uh, to Lilly that helped you get the job? Yeah, so so this this might sound like an unconventional way to to have a contact or a network in, but but actually, um, I think my real entry pass um, into the application process here and and knowing people at a at a deeper level um, 
came through my PI, came through my academic PI, uh, because I had not been afraid to let him know that I wasn't mm. satisfied with where things were at, and I thought my future lay out, out outside the walls of the university. And you know, we we hear horror stories about PIs who you know, take vengeful action upon people who do this kind of thing. Well, this this wasn't this wasn't the case, and and I, I hope that's a relatively speaking a minority of cases. So he actually um, consults a lot. Um, with the with the group at Lily that I'm now working with and he came back to me um, after one meeting and said hey I was just speaking with these folks they're interested in expanding their department I think someone with your skills might fit in there very well um, here are their details why don't you write to them introduce yourself a bit and you know that's really where everything went from there um, take home message once you've decided that you don't want to be an academic researcher anymore and you would like to make the move toward R&D in industry, don't be afraid to let everybody in your network know. And um, I've, I've certainly spoken to a few folks who kind of keep it to themselves as a big secret saying, oh, I, I, you know, I don't want my academic collaborators to know, they'll think poorly of me, there'll, there'll be this and this and this consequence. Um, I think if you do that, especially considering that few of us have planted um, the tree 100 years ago that we were referring to earlier. Um, a, a lot of your network is going to be your academic collaborators and colleagues and and I don't think they're all of a sudden going to disown you um, when they when they hear from you that you might like to work in industry. Everyone knows that the funding situation, at least in the US, is really tough. Um, everyone understands that academia is sort of an accidental pyramid scheme that even though it was never designed to take advantage well, of, of the genius, they, they do, yeah, yeah. they do. So, you so, know, go, go ahead and broadcast. No, no, I think, I, I think that is uh, in a sense good advice. I, I think context matters. So number one, everyone unfortunately doesn't know that quite yet. And it's, I think it's difficult. Um, we, you know, many of you have reached out to us personally, you're going through very tough situations it is more than rare that you are, you might be in a tough situation in academia with a PI. I do think context does matter. And I didn't ask this question. So maybe help us understand, you know, how long were you in academia for Scott? So when did you come out where, you know, you weren't transitioning as a PhD student or broadcasting that maybe you can help us understand at what, how long were you in academia and at what point? Uh, I, I, no, you're, you're right. Context is huge. I mean, I, I had been, I mean, it, it adds up to nearly 17 years, 17 yeah. to 18 years. So I was not, a, I was not, you know, a newly graduated student. Neither was I on my first postdoc. And I, I think um, having having the confidence to do something such as I've done now, right back then. I mean, that would have been a that would have been a completely different ball game. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I, I name no names, but I can think of at least one PI who would have taken that very poorly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, context is is very important in this. There and there, there are ways and means of sort of, of avoiding the, the the vengeful PI. Um, but nonetheless, um, to the I, I mean, well, let's moderate my 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 previous comment and say, go out and tell everybody your ambitions. Um, go out and tell as many people as you can safely <laughs> in a way that's not going to jeopardize your position or make life really miserable. Um, but but don't be afraid of your decision once mm. once you've taken it, and then yes. then the consequences will play out from there. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, be confident in who you are and what you want share those with people who are going to support you. But obviously, if you haven't passed your comprehensive exam, 
uh, haven't received your PhD yet, you're with a particular advisor where you just know it's not going to be taken well, choose when to take on that battle and, yeah. and, and be smart. Um, but overall, you know, I think know what you want, dig into what you want. Don't just want what somebody else wants for you. That's crucial. Uh, Scott, you know, one of the, the questions that we've had uh, come in quite a bit, and I think you'd be the perfect person to answer, is what were some of the, the positive surprises that you've had along the way? Maybe uh, with onboarding with Lily, um, the, maybe during the interview process, maybe what, it's, what life has been like afterwards. Can you, can you speak to those a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, 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 think, I think the most positive aspect of, of all of this for me has been feeding on that, that energy that comes every day from being, being, in, being in those rooms of very smart people all, all aiming in exactly the same direction. Um, I, I think it's common in academia that, that we, we build a kind of defensive system around ourselves because if we go to present our work, if we go to try to publish our work, if we write a grant application, we're just waiting for people to nitpick. So we set up defenses against, against the negatives. You think, okay, how am I going to answer that? How am I going to answer that? How am I going to answer that? The whole process of interviewing here for the position, not to mention um, my daily work and the material I present, the mindset is very much, what are the positives in here? How can we, how can we best use the information you're bringing to us? How can we best use some of your existing skills and incorporate them into our company? And basically, how can we make everything better? Now, part of Lily's motto, um, uh, I mean, there, there, are, there are many mottos around the place, but one of, one of Eli Lily's mottos was, take what you find here and make it better and better. And I can say that in the interviewing process, in my daily interactions with people, not only in my department, but really in the wider company, this seems to be a company that, that absolutely lives that motto. So I've gone from sort of having to run around slightly on eggshells every day thinking, all right, which, which smart ass in the room is going to make a negative comment about this or this or this, and I'm going to have to defend myself or convince them of something. It's, it's a much different environment. Okay, you've got a good idea. How can we build on it? How can we make it better? And that is amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I think um, you should all know that that is out there for you as a PhD, you can have that. You know, we talk about being able to do meaningful work, being able to be treated well, being able to show, you know, show up motivated in more of a positive, open environment. That's there, and it's important to to hear that from from others such as Scott, who are who are working in industry at a, at a great company now. Um, so, Scott, I wanted to ask you too, what what is different? The last question here: What's different between working at the bench? in industry versus academia, like in terms of, you know, what are robotics doing that you were doing in academia, as an example, or, or how much time do you spend getting to think strategically and, and strategize versus what you were doing more tactically and on the ground or pipetting or whatever before? Can you speak to those differences just a bit? Yeah, dude, I wish I had a robot. Where's my robot? Give me my robot. Um, <laughs> so far, so all of the bench work um, that I've done here, I've had to do myself. Um, but but that's 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 a good thing. Um, at, at the level that I'm at, I'm expected to read a lot, think a lot, strategize, come up with new directions, mm. figure out how a whole business plan is going to work. Um, however, I have, I have willingly, I've in fact begged my... Um, my um, director a couple of times to let me go and do experiment X and Y at the bench to get me out of the office for a day or two. And he mm -hmm. has um, been 
you've been very kindly allowed me to do that. Um, I, I think compared to academic research, I think what you'll find here is that every experiment is planned and monitored um, to a much deeper extent than you might be used to. Um, now, some people I, I think find that a little bit micromanaging or a little bit restrictive, but really a company in the company environment, um, no one wants to pay money for you just to do an experiment on a whim, just because you've read one paper and you think it's a good idea. Everything's gonna be discussed um, and will work very solidly to make sure that the, that the data are robust, that, they, that there are sufficient number of animals or cell cultures or, or whatnot, so that yes. the data are likely to be reproducible. What you might've been able to, quote unquote, get away with in academia. And I, I, I hate to say that, that we, that we used to get away with things, but frankly, we've all been there. Your PIO will say, oh, you know, great, N of four, you passed P.05, off you go. Whereas, and you know, I was always sitting there at the time thinking, you've got to be kidding, no one's gonna be able to reproduce this. So there's, so there's, there's much more of a focus on, on, on planning your experiments carefully. And you have to get used to planning your experiments by committee. You know, it won't be just convincing um, your most your most immediate um, colleague. You might have to convince a few people that it's worthwhile to launch Animal Study X or Gene Expression Study Y before it happens. Um, but the payback is, I think you know that you will have made something solid. Mm. It has to be solid in industry because at the end of the day, all of this stuff has to add up to a product that actually goes out and gets sold and is useful to people rather than something that passes muster just so it gets into um, nature or PNAS or whatever. And wow. that, I mean, that, that, that to me, it, it's, it's actually right there. That's the whole difference between academic research and industry research, yes. Same tools, same techniques, same statistics, same red tape, same animal ethics committees, um, same, you know, all of the things that, that can drive us nuts in R&D. But here, at the end of the day, a product has to go out that's going to benefit another human being. Whereas in academia, wow. um, that drive, I mean, really, that we, I guess we used to say out there, there is that drive, but actually, the real measures are, did you publish? Did you get the next grant? And that is not the same thing as making medicine. And that's the best synopsis I've ever heard of the current situation. And Scott is a, a, obviously a phenomenal communicator. Scott, you need your own podcast. I'm telling you. Amazing. It can be called <laughs> academic versus industry research. I mean, it's just so perfectly nail on the head. And that's, it's hard for us to think that is the rigor of science actually more in industry? Yes, it is now. And I, I think it might be. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't want to, you know, overgeneralize or, or say that all right. academic labs um, but the mean. do things under the carpet, sure. because that's simply not true. Right. Um, but the demand for rigor here is certainly that much mm -hmm. higher, because uh, there's much more money riding on it, to be frank. Yeah, and uh, the, the consequences are, in fact, uh, graver. Um, which will make any, which just automatically makes the rigor more. And I think we could talk about this uh, for hours and I, I know we'll have Scott back on. Please thank Scott in the chat box. This was fantastic. Always just brings so much value and is, has a, a, an excellent way of explaining complex topics and making comparisons in a way that we can understand and that will enlighten a lot of you who are considering R&D positions in industry. And Scott, for me, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much, Isaiah. Pump, pump, bitch!
This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pump up the bass.